Welcome to Mormon Visual Culture, a podcast presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. This year, we celebrate the 50th anniversary of President Spencer W. Kimball's landmark talk, The Gospel Vision of the Arts. Through discussions with prominent artists, collectors, and scholars about artwork that has inspired them and shaped LDS culture. We are very pleased today to have the artist Jeff Hine with us. His work has been written up in numerous magazines and newspapers, including American Art Collector, Fine Art Connoisseur, Arts and Antiques, and Jet Set Magazine. Jeff has won a number of awards, including second place at the National Portrait Society's Portrait Competition, second place in the figurative category of the International Art Renewal Center's Salon, and first place in the Springville Museum's annual Spring Salon. Jeff has served as a faculty artist for the Portrait Society of America, uh, for from 2013 to 2017, I've got that right, right? In 2007, Hein founded the Hein Academy of Art in Salt Lake City, where he trains 12 apprentices in the naturalist tradition of painting. Hein is known for his portraits, multifigural narrative, and scriptural paintings. And he's a longtime friend. Hopefully, um, I'm sure we always have a lot to talk about, but uh, maybe I'll stay on topic this time. I know that, that I can be tangential when we get together. <laughs> Welcome, Jeff. Thank you. Glad to be here. So um, I asked you to pick a work of art, and you could have picked many, but the first one that came to your mind was? Was The Pool of Bethesda by Karl Block. Now, I've, I've got to give a little bit of a, a, a for, for listeners, uh, a, a, a little bit of a, a, a comment here. We um, have talked about Karl Block with other people as part of interviews. And we've talked about the pull of Bethesda before, so this is going to be a repeat for some. But there's a reason. It's because Karl Block is omnipresent in our culture. And Eric and I are going to do a separate podcast about Karl Block and his omnipresence. Um, so having said that, let's get on with our conversation. Just okay. um, why did you pick the pull of Bethesda by Karl Block? Well, I wish there was a sophisticated reason for it. The biggest reason is because it is in my opinion, the best example of religious painting in the state of Utah. Okay. So it's it's easily accessible to me. So I've had an opportunity to study it more than any other um, significant religious piece that I've been exposed to. So it's not that it's my favorite painting I've ever seen. It's one of them, but it's just so accessible. What's the difference between being able to see a painting in person versus having the image of it on a computer screen or... Or uh, why does it make a difference to have it in person? Oh, it makes a huge difference. It, uh, even a high-resolution image, you can't see the transparency versus opacity of paint. It's hard to interpret um, the how people applied the paint, the artists applied the paint. You know, any any technical details is just really difficult to make out, even in a high-resolution image. And then there's just not that many high-res images available out there. So. Is there something special about the application of paint in Karl Bloch's work that you've noticed that comes out to you? Um, or when you're another way of saying it would be when you're looking at it in person, what jumps out at you about his his work in person? Well, there's a few things. From a technical standpoint, you're asking, yes, right? Okay, yes. It's there's this a, it's this idea that. Uh, I, Picasso once said this. Not not that you're necessarily a huge Picasso fan, but he, uh, or, or maybe you are. He said, um, 
when art historians get together, they talk about meaning and depth. But when artists get together, they talk about turpentine and brushes. Right. Yeah, so, that's the true. That's so true. If, if you were to sit down and talk turpentine and brushes with Carl Block, what would the conversation look like? Well, there's a couple things that I've noticed about him um, that have been informative. And I don't know how much I've been able to apply them to my own work, but uh, he seems to just do whatever it takes to get it done. And I've seen this in the in the Pool of Bethesda, where there are some places where he uses a lot of impasto and builds up layers and layers of paint, and others where he seems to almost go at it a la prima. Um, so that's been interesting to see and that's definitely something you couldn't make out in most images in books or on the internet um he seems to leave things unfinished in the foreground and finished in the background and you know a lot of times it might have to do with his intended eye direction or narrative other times i'm not really sure i mean it's just been really fascinating to study that particular painting because there's decisions that he's made technically that i might not have made and I'm not saying that they're wrong. Um, you know, either one of us are wrong. It's just interesting to try and get into the mind of another artist um, by studying their work. Are these? Let me rephrase what I was going <clears throat> to say. You, you like me, probably encountered Carl Block, and like most people, as uh, a, in in the printed image before you ever saw an original. You were familiar with him, I right? Imagine, right? Yeah. When you see his work in person, are there things that you could have never that that, that seemed counterintuitive that you would have never guessed seeing the printed image that he he um, accomplished something that when you saw it in person you thought, huh? I would have never pieced together that he put it that that it showed up this way in the physical work because the printed image looks this much different. Well, yeah, exactly what I just said. That whole yeah. idea that some things are seem to be done in a single sitting while others he builds up over time in layers. That's probably the biggest thing that I've noticed that I couldn't have made out in pictures. You know, he did this work, I was doing the math, in 1883. He would have been 49, almost 50 at this point. Mm -hmm. um, when you hear that, do you think, oh, that sounds about right. 49, 50 years old for an artist. Or do you think, huh, that's... Uh, that's younger than I thought. That's older than I thought. I, I didn't. I certainly didn't think that's about right because it's so varied from artist to artist what they accomplish when, you know. Right. Um, I try not to think dwell too much on age because I'm 42 and I feel like I still haven't created my masterpiece yet. So it can get depressing if you focus too much on age. But, um, but I mean, when I heard that he was 49 when he did it, I had two thoughts. One is, oh, good, I still have time to do something great. <laughs> the seven other, years. Seven years, yeah. The <laughs> other thing is, yeah, but that's just one piece. I mean, he was doing wonderful things long before that. Um, it, so It's kind of a naive question for me to ask it and right. say, you know, age-wise, does it matter? But yeah. I guess why I'm thinking about it is there's, a, there's an exhibition that just opened at the British Museum on Hokusai. And he's the, 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 the famous great wave artist. He had a very long career. And I read a quote by him. The, the, the exhibition of the British Museum is dedicated to his later paintings. He had a varied career. It wasn't until the 70, his 70s and that he did the great wave. And he said in this quote that I read that, uh, and I'll just paraphrase it, 
when I'm when I'm 70, when I'm 80, I'll be able to understand the underlying principle. I'll be able to see things correctly. When I'm 90, I'll be able to see the underlying principle of things. When I'm 100, I'll be doing some of my best work. And when I'm 110, every dot, every line that I do will be perfect, right? Mm-hmm. You only live to be 89, right? And I think, who lives to be 110 to accomplish, accomplish that work? And how many artists do we say are going to do their best work when they're older? Some people, just art, hist- art history, peak when they're younger. Mm-hmm. But all the time I've known you, and if you don't mind me saying this, it seems like you every year are gaining momentum with what you're doing. Mentally, you're more excited, you're more engaged, and you're doing more and more ambitious work all the time. Where, when when I look at Carl Block, that he did this when he was 49, um, he didn't live a whole much a whole lot longer than this. Um, do you? When do you uh, see yourself doing your? You say you haven't created your masterpiece yet. What, at what age are you going to create your masterpiece? What do you think? Hopefully and, this and you year. Can't predict it. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully this year. Um, I don't. Yeah, obviously I can't predict that. But I can empathize with that statement about being 110. I think that most of us will die not satisfied with where we are. I mean, to me, that's what I heard when. Yeah. When I heard that statement. Um, because it, you're always, if you're if you're doing it right, and you're always pushing yourself, then you're always improving, and there's, yeah. and your potential is unlimited. So we're all going to die too early, having not reached our full potential. But, I mean, you know, when I look at a piece like the Pool of Bethesda, it does really inspire me to think that um, of what he was able to achieve at that age. I mean, 49 is not young, but it's not old either. No, um, and it's just an incredible piece of work. On every level, technically, in my opinion, of course, but technically, I mean, I feel so much when I look at it. Um, the size and scale of it is impressive. It's just an amazing. Has work. it had an influence on your work? Oh, absolutely. I really look up to Carl Block. How? What, what specifically has it? Uh, how has it influenced you? Cause uh, it's hard to it's you know it's hard to really measure. But I I think that I without. I try not to compare myself to other artists, um, but I can't help but to do that, you know? So I'll often look at my work and look at artists like him and say, how am I measuring up? And sometimes it's not, um, sometimes it's not specific things because I don't want to be him. You know, no artist wants to be some, well, I shouldn't say that. Most of us don't want to be another artist. We, we want to contribute to the to the art world and society in our own personal way so but from a technical standpoint he's a he's a great um measuring device for me in that um he gives me a goal to work toward because i i think he's well he's not a perfect artist i think he's uh none of us are i i think he's achieved a lot of things that are admirable is it is it the when you say that you look up to him and you want to uh, contribute like him, is is it is it not necessarily the technical you're talking about, but maybe what you feel? You said when you look at something, when you look at his work, you feel something. Is that is that I've been talking about turpentine, but let's not talk so much about right. turpentine. Let's ask about how is is it the achievement of Carl Block in the way he makes the viewer feel? and how he captures a subject 
that that mm. is also astounding interesting to you yeah well here's what it comes down to so one of the things to go back to your last question which leads up to this yeah one of the things that's probably influenced me more than anything else is his whole series of the life of christ which is something that i've begun working on myself which was absolutely inspired by him um and um, these are the 24 paintings <clears throat> for Fredericksburg Castle that he did. Right. That are not large, but no. they're but they're not tiny either. They're no. a fairly good size. And I'm actually actually doing 24 paintings myself. Okay. Um, and I don't of course I don't want them to look like his, but I but it's inspired me because it's a it's an amazing um, contribution to the world that series of paintings in my opinion. So that being said, um, I think what makes him special is not just his technical ability, but the way I believe from everything I've read about him and from looking at his paintings that he really believed what he was painting. And I think that he had he had the technical ability to be able to say it in a way that people were not inhibited by the lack of experience or lack of training so that they he could really express what he wanted to express so with my work when i do the life of christ i want the technique to be solid enough that people can appreciate what i'm trying to say about the subject matter or more importantly what the subject matter represents it's not even so much my voice i mean the subject matter already has power in and of itself you know when you think of christ and the life of christ but I can't let myself get in the way. And I think to keep to get yourself out of the way, your technique has to be as as close to perfect as possible. That's an interesting thought. Does it, could you have done so you're going to do these 24 paintings on the life of Christ. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much of it you're ready to talk about, if at all, but I'll, you can tell me if, if you want to keep some of it under your hat for now, if I, if I, if I ask too many questions about it, because I know this is something you're, you're in the process of. But could you have done them 10 years ago? No way. What has changed? Why, why technically can you, do you feel confident enough to start to do them now versus 10 years ago? Because I've been preparing for 10 years. I mean, this is something I've wanted to do for a very long time. I started doing religious painting right out of college. Well, while I was still in college, I did my first religious piece and I actually did it reluctantly, but I decided it's something that I, really wanted to do from that point on so why did you do it reluctantly do you mind me asking what was well, it because because there's a there's a in our culture there's a negative stigma attached to religious painting i think that i wanted to not be part of as an um, artist you didn't want to be grouped necessarily with the people right. doing religious art right um not anyone in particular but just the idea of i'm a religious artist right and i know that's terrible because now that i am a religious artist i'm i'm very I hate to say proud, but I'm proud to be doing something so meaningful. Um, but I just, I was really concerned about doing sentimental work, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I think all of us go through this stage yeah. in our lives. It's this idea that we're not a prophet in our own land or our own land isn't prophetic to us. Right, And right. so we, we kind of have to... We have to rebel a little bit against it before we appreciate what we have and what we're a part of or, yeah. why, or why we want to be a part of it. At yeah, and that's, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. And when I was in my 20s and trying to figure out what I wanted to be, I thought that the world outside of my culture was much more interesting. And that's because even though our culture is 
significantly smaller than the world at large, um, to me, our culture was much larger. It's what I grew up with. So, so it seemed more natural to move outside of it, to rebel as in, in my 20s. Um, but in reality, I feel now as more of a rebel by being part of it because hmm. the, the Mormon culture is, is tiny compared to, I mean, what, we have maybe 6 million active members of our church versus 7 billion people. So I'm proud to be part of this culture at this point. But in my early 20s, I was fi- trying to figure myself out, and I'm like, oh, I don't want to be sentimental, and I don't want to be another Mormon artist, and, you know, this sort of thing. But now I'm, I think it's a wonderful opportunity. Well, I want to get back to what's changed over the past 10 years, but maybe we should fill in a little biography here. Okay. And you, you uh, graduate... Um, Technically, from, I didn't graduate. But technically, I, well, you I dropped out. Yeah, dropped out, and <clears throat> you were at BYU at the time, right? No, the University no, of Utah. I'm sorry, University of Utah. You were at the University of Utah, and you almost immediately start. You, you start working. A lot of artists aren't aren't able to do this. You, you're doing. Um, you're. Uh, you've got your own studio. You've got commercial work. You're doing. You're mm-hmm. doing portraiture, and you establish a national reputation as a not just a portraitist, but as a figurative artist. And you have representation uh, in uh, one. One was in Los Angeles, right? Right. And was the uh, where, where, there was at another... one point I had it in Los Angeles, London, New York, Vienna, and Singapore. And you're one of these but artists. I, right now, I'm not represented by anybody. <clears throat> well, and before we get to that and why you made that decision, yeah, I I remember that I was giving a lecture in Madrid once, mm-hmm. and. Somebody saw in my biography, and, and, and I was speaking to a group of figurative artists. Uh, you're from Utah. I said, yeah. Do you know the artist Jeff Hine? They would have had no context whatsoever for you or for me in a religious art context. They thought of you as a figurative artist who was working you know, as part of the international zeitgeist of the time, right? And then at some point you decided you're going to... You're gonna, not be represented by galleries anymore. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? Well, it wasn't really, it wasn't really a single moment where I decided to do that. It was in 2008, I think, that, it's funny because all these questions tie together. Um, this, this actually relates to why I wasn't prepared 10 years ago. Um, but it was in 2008 that I decided that in order to do this Life of Christ thing, I needed to figure out how to paint more like the Masters. And when I say that, I don't mean necessarily in their mediums and processes, but that quality. I wanted to have a more timeless, naturalistic quality that I didn't see in my work. And um, so I took two and a half years off and lived on savings and didn't show work anywhere for two and a half years. And during that two and a half years, it happened to be during the recession, which was a coincidence because I started my um, sabbatical just before the market crashed. Wow. Um, so the timing was actually quite good because I probably would have been not making any money anyway. I, who knows? But um, so by the time that two and a half years was up and I was ready to start showing my work again, my gallery was on its way out. In Wait. other words, they were going out of business. The gallery that had represented me. They got caught up in the economy and the you problems might, with the potential. Yeah, I guess. Well, um, you, so... At that point, I had to decide, do I want to look for more representation or do I want to go it on my own? And I just decided, let's go it on my own as long as I can. So hold on a second, because something we, we missed was 
what that two and a half year sabbatical was. What did you do during that two and a half year sabbatical? I didn't show work, which was significant because it gave me an opportunity to experiment in a way that I didn't have to worry about failure as, you know, and, and as a, a smart artist should never worry about failure, but it's, but it's so much easier to get that idea out of your head when you know you're not going to show the work. So I could experiment um, at a level that I was not free to do up until that point. Because um, once, you, once, you um, once you have a thing that you do, a look that you create, in order to continue to make money, you continue to make that look. It you seems know? like it would be a curse and a blessing because then you, there are a lot of artists who don't have that success. Mm-hmm. They're able to experiment a lot, and then they finally land on what they're good, what they love, and what people buy from them. Right. But you had the opposite experience. You come right out of school. You have a brand in a mm-hmm. way, and to back off from that brand, to, yeah, my, I took off is, right away. Is a gutsy thing. I got lucky. I took off right away, and I was making a great living. But then um, in 2007, I remember the moment where I was like, I'm bored. I just I, I just decided I had done everything I could do with what I was doing. And, um, I mean, there were a lot of thoughts we don't even have time to get into. But um, that, among many other things in my life at the time, helped me to realize that what I needed to focus on was this this life of Christ and painting Christ and doing it in a way where I could get myself out of the way and people could really appreciate the stories and narratives and and the significance of his life and ministry. So um, I took that two and a half years to just experiment. And when I say experiment, I wasn't experimenting with style. I was experimenting with technique, just trying to figure out how to make my paintings more lifelike, more three-dimensional, more dramatic, more beautiful you know, more technically sound, so that, um, you know, the best analogy I can come up with is you, you, uh, you might have a lot to say as a poet. You know, you may have a beautiful perspective on the world, but if you've got a 200-word vocabulary, <laughs> no one's right. going to feel anything when they read your poetry. So right. I, I felt like I had a 200-word vocabulary, and I just needed to extend that so that when people saw my paintings, they could really feel... Um, more than I was comfortable with at the time. So there's, there's that great. Um, there's a there's a quote that I heard recently. Somebody said there there's no such thing as an amateur folk novelist. No <laughs> one's gonna read a, somebody's who 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 hasn't read books or who hasn't really really mastered their ability to tell a story through practice. Right. They're not gonna. They're not just gonna say, oh, you know, somebody woke up one night and wrote a novel and I'm going to spend a lot and that it's going to be a fantastic novel. Right. And you know, and there's so many great stories out there and the worst thing you could possibly do is have the wrong person tell it huh. and completely ruin it. You know, uh, I, and I've, I've heard, it's like someone, it's like, uh, I remember one time when I was a kid, my father told a joke and he got the punchline wrong. And that joke, well, it was, it actually, when we figured out what the punchline was, it was actually a really funny joke. But It'll never be funny to me now because I ruined the joke, you know, and it's that way. I don't want to ruin it. I don't want I, I want when I paint this Life of Christ series, I, I feel like I've got one shot at it and I wanted to be prepared. So that's why I took this time off to so do this. Do you mind if I ask you some things about this Life of Christ series? Sure. How big are the pieces going to be? Well, that's sort of undecided, but I, the, the largest one I've got planned for right now is about nine feet tall. So this is... This is monumental in size, life-size figures. 
Not always. Uh, but two that I'm working on now are smaller than life. Some will be life size. Some will be smaller. It'll va- it'll be varied. How do you how do you determine size? A lot of it has to do with. I mean, I am I am limited on space. Yeah. Um, Everybody is on some level, right? right well, not every. I mean, if I was born and the Pope was my. You know, but even then, Michelangelo had a ceiling that was physically created, right? Yeah. Well, but I am limited. So if I have a painting with 50 people in it, I can't do it life size. I just don't have the wall space where it's going. So, but I I guess um, what I'm getting at is not necessarily the specific size. Is it's it's the idea of the difference between doing a piece that hangs over a mantelpiece versus something that's larger. The the pool of Bethesda. Mm Is there something, would it be the same impact if it were a 20 by 30, in your opinion? And has that gone into account with you making this series of the life of Christ? Are you choosing deliberately to do a larger size because it has an impact in that scale? Absolutely. Yeah, I am. And, and why? And why that scale? Why a larger scale? Well... When I can, I do want to do life-size figures. And I feel like life-size figures, or larger than life, are significant because if done well, it's as though when you're standing in front of the original painting, it's as though you can step into the scene. If they're smaller than life, they obviously it, there's a separation between you and the scene. Um, it's almost as if you're stepping into it. You're on the edge of it. Right. The fourth wall. The, they, they like you're an onlooker in the actual event. Yeah. This this then begs a question, I guess I'd, maybe you have or haven't thought about this. Maybe it's just a Micah aside. Is okay, let's let's fast forward fifty years from now and let's say these works are everything that we hope they'll be, and they will be adopted into our visual culture and our and our teaching culture as Mormons. And um, physically people can go see them. But a larger number number of people will possibly see them as eight and a half by eleven reprints in an instruction manual or in a, a some kind of church publication or on a website or something like that. Um, that's what we've done with Carl Block, right? Um, do you account for that in your making of these pieces, or no. can you? I mean, Maybe you can't. No, not really. No, I, I don't think... I think that would be a disservice to the larger painting. I mean, You know, there's this... An illustrator, that's one of the difficulties from what I've been told by friends who are illustrators, is that you have to paint for print. Um, and that affects the way you paint. Uh, so, for example, you know, transparent paint doesn't necessarily pick up well in print. But the use of transparent paint transparent versus opaque paint is critical to creating form with oil paint. That's what makes oil paint superior. So right. if I'm painting for print, I would be painting in acrylic and I wouldn't have nearly the power that I have with oil or the, the control for, for depth that I have with oil. So right there, I would be choosing the wrong medium if I were painting for print. So I just have to let print, I just have to let that go. It's just a choice you have to make. You uh, just yeah. have to if say... I want to do the best originals I can do, print can't be in my mind. That's that's yeah. interesting. Well, that answers my question. It's an, yeah. it's a it's an interesting question for me because um, it makes me wonder. It, may, it it it's a catch twenty two. It's do you distribute these works, knowing that they're going to be seen, at a sub, sub uh, quality level of what they normally would. And this it's a larger art historical visual question, right? Right. They'll the still be fine. But it's not like they're gonna. Uh, you can still reproduce an oil painting of any 
the technology's so good now, I, it'll be quite close to the original, but it, no print could ever be like an original. So I want to I want to switch gears a little bit about yeah. about something when we're talking about these paintings. Is I remember um, uh, Karl Block has, in my opinion, and I think in other people's opinions, he has a Christ that is somewhat a, a cross between um, neoclassicism and naturalism. He looks like a real person, an actual person, but this. Um, but he's also somewhat um, classicized and, and and anonymous, and you can kind of project on him uh, a, a, a figure that 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 uh, could be a real person, may not be. It strikes me when I look at your Christ, and it, it, and I've seen in various works, but in in recently in the triumphal entry work that that you've done, that I understand is going to the Church uh, History Museum. Mm-hmm. Um, so people will be able to see this. Did, did you have a, a an actual person in mind? And maybe that's wrong, but the reason I'm asking that and I'm setting it up before I ask you th- th- this question is you're a portraitist too, right? So how do you tackle the Christ as a figure, as a portraitist, and as someone who wants to get out of the way of the... You, you've said it in this, in this discussion... You wanted to get out of the way of, of with your technique and and let the subject shine forth. So how do you approach the problem or opportunity of painting Christ? Oh my gosh, it's so funny you should ask this right now because no no kidding, yesterday mm-hmm. afternoon I was sculpting Christ for this exact reason. So um, I actually realized a few months back that if I do this project, it could take me 25 years. So... Um, the model that I've been using for Christ up until now is going to be an old man, you know. So he's not going to be forever a thirty-something-year-old Christ. No, and it's already a struggle because, yes, I do use a real person, or I had been using a real person, but I wasn't copying him. So there's already editing going on, and as he changes, the editing is going to get more and more complex. And um, I realized that or I decided that I want my Christ to be consistent across this 25 years. So I've started sculpting Christ from my mind of what I want him to look like. Now, I have no desire to try and make him accurate because it would be silly. There's no way I could. Um, I'm, I'm, and I'm sure I'm influenced by my culture, but my, my goal is to make a Christ that I feel comfortable looking at, that I can relate to, and um, it's actually been really exciting. I've been as I've been sculpting him. I've wondered why I didn't do this ten years ago. Um, Are you going to use this sculpture as right. a, a, an in studio reference for right. the rest I'll of your? I'll sculpt him. I don't know six to twelve times in different poses, and I'll use that sculpture as my reference. So I'll no longer use a live model for Christ. I'll use live models for everything else, um, but not for Christ. It's fascinating. It. If you're a neoclassicist mm-hmm. and you're David or Ang or a, a, any any one of those late 18th century, early 19th century artists, and you don't have the burden of dealing with a with a model that you have to capture all the nuances of that model, and you can use people almost as symbols, mm-hmm. there are it, it can be really beneficial mm-hmm. in in a lot of ways. But you, like a lot of those artists, were also 
you have a lot of experience as a portraitist. It has to inform the Christ you come up with. You're not going to have a straight nose from the bridge of the forehead. It's not going to look. It's not going to look like this this Greek god who walked out of a of a marble carving studio. But I mean, are you are you starting with a with a model and then making adjustments? Is this just, or are you no. trusting in a way instinctually that you've been a portraitist for so long and you've been you've painted him? I don't know. You've painted. If you count the final pieces, it's at least a dozen times you painted Christ. But if you count all of the studies you've done, it's hundreds of times right. that, you've, that you've done this. So you're kind of you're, you're kind of going from instinct. Yeah, and um, I, I can be very specific actually in what I'm doing. I'm look. I looked at dozens and dozens of Jewish faces. Um, I looked at uh, several well, more than several portraits of Christ that I've always admired um, and some that I haven't because, you know, even the ones I don't like, there are certain things about them that might be positive. Um, I've looked at, I even looked at my own face and not, <laughs> I, has, I shouldn't say that, but the reality is um, most artists paint themselves a little bit into Christ because that's what they're used to looking at and that's what they are, that's what they relate to. You know, I have a, another friend who paints Christ and Christ looks like it could be her son. I mean, it's a trip. Another artist that I know who paints Christ and you could almost superimpose his face on top of Christ. It's it's true of any yeah. artist in any period. It's like uh, Leonardo da Vinci, famously, you look at the Mona Lisa and have you ever seen the picture where they yeah. juxtapose it with his face? And it's, it's uh, there's nothing wrong or hokey about that it's just there's well there's, and it, uh, it's interesting because he, he the sculpture looks nothing like me and right. but if i told you um you would be able to pull out certain features i imagine so it's a combination of christ that i've looked up to from artists or, or artists i've looked up to um their interpretations real jewish men um israeli men particularly and um and just myself um, I'm I'm half Jewish. I'd be happy to sit for you. Yeah, yeah. You look Jewish. <laughs> I was gonna I was going to say that this is. I hadn't thought of this in a while, but years ago we acquired a portrait of um, uh, by by Heinrich Hoffman of Christ. It was a pencil drawing mm -hmm. that Heinrich Hoffman dear, did near the end of his life, that hung in by his bed, and as he said his prayers at night, he would have it. And it came from a family that had received it from a Hindu yogi named Paramahansa Yogananda. Mm -hmm. And Paramahansa Yogananda was a, um, at, the, at the first part of the 20th century, was someone who had come up with this, this idea of uniting all the world's religions, and he'd created various institutes throughout the world. And there was famously one on the East Coast and the West Coast of the United States where he'd hold sessions. And he believed that through various yoga, uh, Hindu and Buddhist practices, you could experience Christ's second coming within you. Oh, interesting. Right? Yeah. So he received a very specific vision of Christ, and he said the only other artist that he knew that had received that same vision was Heinrich Hoffman. Really? And and he therefore had a standing order to collect anything that was ever done by Heinrich Hoffman, and that's how the drawing came in his collection, given to these people, and then we got it. And, and that... That work is now um, here in Utah, and it will eventually be part of the church's 
circulation. But the reason I bring it up is that Heinrich Hoffman, as I talked with um, someone who will eventually have on the po- podcast, um, who who is an expert on him, she said that he he experienced a kind of vision of Christ in his mind. And the question of, of I think most artists would never um, necessarily think that they're going to receive. I don't think that's how you end up. You don't wake up in the morning and say, you know, I'm not a portraitist. I'm not a practice sculptor, but I did have a vision in the shower this morning. Mm-hmm. Right. And I saw, and I saw Christ, not to belittle those who have had them, but even the visions that are had in the church, when you go back and listen to the read, read uh, Joseph Smith's descriptions, they are brightness above the sun, mouth, a sound of rushing waters. They're almost symbolic. They're not, he had a strong nose. He had a good jaw. He, it's, it's not, it's, it's not the kind of thing that a portraitist can work from. Mm-hmm. And and I and I and I'm fascinated. It's something that I'm. I, I know I'm doing most of the talking here, but I'm fascinated by this idea of, and it's actually very comforting to hear you say, something I'm working through. You know, I'm mm-hmm. I'm going to all these references, How, and you say why six to twelve times to sculpt it? Is it because? Oh, I don't know. It's just a. It's just a shot in the dark. But you know yourself pretty well at this point. Do you feel yeah. like that's what it's going to take to land on the right one? You're yeah. not going to get no, it. The no, first no, 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 no. No, I think you misunderstood. So. I'm, I think I'm already on the right one on the first one, huh. because the thing about it, sculpture is I just keep working it until I get it right. So, but but then I need different positions of the head. So I'll have a variety of different positions. That's all. It'll be the same guy in in those positions. And then if I come, um, if I end up with a painting that I need in a whole new position, then I'll have to sculpt a whole new position. Um, you know, the nice thing about the head is, you know, from the chin to the forehead, nothing really moves as far as bone structure. But I. It's the neck muscles and stuff that change significantly as the head tilts back and forth. It, so I'll need a few sculptures for that. But um, but that's all. But I think I've already landed on it. And it's interesting you mentioned Heinrich Hoffman because he was one of the ones that I looked at. Uh, he's definitely an influence. Um, so he's a very specific Christ that stays yeah, the same. And I and I like it a lot. Um, mine doesn't look like his either, but it, I'm sure there's some. It, it probably resembles a little bit his version um but you know the thing is it's interesting you mentioned that vision of christ having a vision of christ and the artists probably don't have it of course most don't but you know i don't even know if i'd want one frankly in one of my pet peeves as an artist um is the criticism that artists get from many people in the public about their interpretations of christ and uh in fact we had a barbecue the other night and uh I was showing this sculpture, and uh, someone at the barbecue, as I'm passing it around, someone at the barbecue said nothing but Danish, and then passed it on, you know, because it was on my phone. And I said, what about it looks Danish? And he couldn't tell me. And I said, do you realize that I looked at, you know, dozens of Israeli men in order to come up with this face? What about it looks Danish? I don't, it just looks Danish, you know? And so... And maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But the point that I'm making is, to me, it doesn't matter if he looks Danish, English, African, Chinese. I don't, it, that's not the point. The point of painting Christ is to say something about Christ that's meaningful. 
you know, uh, Isaiah said that he probably, I can't quote the scripture, but he suggested that he wasn't much to look at, right? I can't paint him that way. You know, yeah. how, how do you express the most beautiful, he was nothing incredible... That we should. Should should desire to, to right look upon something him, like that. Quote. How do you paint the most beautiful, most amazing, most influential human being in the world and make him ugly that ever lived? In my opinion, you know, part of a, my job as a painter is to paint him in such a way that I relate to him, and that he he comes off as what he is is something that's beautiful, something that is desirable, something that um, is influential. Um, and it doesn't matter if he looks Danish. It doesn't matter if what he looks like. It, what, what matters is, well, it does matter what he looks like, but it doesn't matter his race. What matters is that he moves people. And there's no and one that's who what can, I'm after. And there's no one who can tell you what that is. No, because first and foremost, it matters that he moves me. Because I can't, I can't possibly predict how the world's going to react to him. There was a, a conversation that I sat in years ago with John Warnock, who's the founder of Adobe, and he's now the chairman of the board. He's originally from... Utah, went to Olympus High, mm -hmm. and um, went back to California and was one of the researchers at uh, Xerox Park. And he created, he helped create the personal printer, and he created the PDF and Photoshop and all these things that we have today. And somebody asked him, um, well, how did you know people needed those? He said, we didn't. He said, you can't do a focus group. You can't ask people what they want. It's a rear view mirror. He said, uh, you, have to, you have to envision what you want and then tell people why it's useful. And he said, if I had just looked at what people thought they wanted, I would have never invented Photoshop, Illustrator, any of these things. Because nobody had imagined they'd come to be. There was a, billions of dollars of industry that was created that if he had looked at critics, it would have been a different thing. And I imagine this is a similar problem. You can do an imitation of Christ, mm -hmm. of somebody else's art, and meet people's expectations. But it sounds like what you're doing is much more about, I, I was going to ask you, who is the perfect viewer, in a way? Who is the audience that you're painting for? And it seems like, and I want your answer too, but it seems like you're the, I you're, am. You're, you are, right? I'm the only one that matters. When, when, as I'm painting, I'm the only one that matters. You're John Warnock in that situation. Yeah, and, and it's because... You know, Chuck Close said once in an interview that someone was asking him, you know, if he could have predicted his success. And he said something to the effect of, you know, it was just luck. If he had done what he was doing 10 years before or 10 years earlier, he would have missed the boat. But he just happened to be doing what he was interested in at that moment happened to be what other people are interested in. I can't be concerned about the rest of the world. I just have to do what's meaningful to me and hope for the best. Because if I try and anticipate what others will accept, I'll probably be wrong. Okay, you know? so this then begs a question for me of, if you're gonna be working on these 24 paintings for how many years do you think? What probably, you I'm planning on about 24 years, one per year. So if you've changed so much in 10 years as an artist, right? How, do you worry about, about consistency no across those 24 years mm -mm. or um do you do you continue i imagine that the first painting is going to be different than the last painting in 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 some ways right maybe your maturity has changed obviously and your approach is that something that you worry about or you just take it as it goes 
Yeah, it's funny. I've been asked that quite a bit, but no, Have you? because yeah, because um, even by the people that are supporting this, you know, but this next 25 years is a lot different than the last 15 that I've been painting. And, and that because the last 15 have been specifically to prepare for the next 25, hmm. you know, and, and it's always been in my mind that this is what I'm working toward. So, and I, at this point I'm ready to go, you know, will I get better? I hope so. But Will I have a complete style change? Absolutely not. I, well, I, I've decided at this point, that's not even, that's not even a so possibility. It's, it's almost like asking somebody who has switched careers at some point, um, are you going to switch careers again? And then they would say, no, I know what I'm doing now. Yeah. I know who I am. I know what I'm at. You've, you went through this process, the 15 years to get to this point. You've, you've got your direction. You've got your, your vision of, of how you want to move forward. There are details about how to solve the problems that are going to be encountered in each one of these paintings that you're doing forward. But you're not going to decide in the middle of it that you're a cubist. No. And the thing is, this is not just, yeah, technically it's 24 paintings, but it's one exhibit. So to me, I'm going to do other work during this 24 years. This isn't all I'm going to do, but, and that, and in that work I can experiment and do other things. But the way I see it is these 24 paintings are one work. And they're going in one location. They're a, they have single intent. Um, and so until the 24 are done, none of them are done. So there's no point in changing. It's one painting. But, you know, everything I do outside of that, yeah, sure, whatever. I might experiment and change a half a dozen times. That's fine. Without violating privacy or anything, but I, I, I do want to ask it because people, I'm sure, do ask, is you're not being represented by gallery right now. I know you continue to do portraiture. I mean, you're a very prominent national portraitist who goes to the National Portrait Society conference every year and helps uh, is on staff as one of their teachers. And I'm sure that brings in some income. But how do you end up getting paid for 24 paintings of Christ that happen over a 24-year period? Well, just in general terms. That's a work in progress. <laughs> so my goal is to be able there's to be able to find people that will donate. If you people want to help you with this, yeah, can they? Absolutely. That's so what it's, I, it's that's not what a I closed need. circuit. People no. could come in. No, and, and so I'm working with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, it will be it will be in their possession this whole collection and open to the public. Um, I'm still working with their lawyers and stuff, so it's not quite in writing yet. So that's to be clear, but um, but. Three of the paintings have already been paid for and donated by very generous collectors. So donors. it's not the church. The church has made a commitment, and you're in the process of that to right. show and display them. Right. But, but they're, they, but but it's other people, and this is a very common scenario who are helping with the patronage. Um, right. The church's money needs to go to the poor and other things that are much more important. So, in, or just different. Or just different. This is um no. This this is only possible if people are willing to buy them and donate them. And so far, we've got three paid for, which is pretty amazing already because we haven't started soliciting for donors yet. Um, Let's say somebody hears this uh -huh. and wants to be a part of that. Should they just reach out to you? On just your... reach out to me and I'll, yeah. And there, We'll they'll... have, on, with this podcast on our website, mm -hmm. information on how to get a hold of you. Right, and there will be, there. there is a nonprofit associated with it, so it's all it will all be tax deductible. Um, 
and you've set this up as its own thing legally. It is even. all being set up as we speak. So okay. um, this is all very new. The first one is done, but the next two are still in progress, and the legal stuff is all still in progress. But before we take a dime from anybody, it'll all there will be a nonprofit set up. Um, it'll ever all the I's will be dotted and T's will be crossed. It'll all be very legal and safe, and so people can donate with confidence that. It will go where it's said it's going to go. It will be displayed the way it's the way it's been promised, and every dime will be used the way in, this is, it's this intended. This is exciting. Can yeah. I just say that this is very exciting? Yeah, very it is exciting, this. and I hope it. I really hope it works out. So my intent is to do twenty-four, but I have to have at least twenty-four paintings paid for. So um, it's a. As I finish each painting, my hope is just that there is another one behind it, and so that this whole project can be done. So. We're at the end of our time, and um, I want to ask a question we've been asking almost everyone. Uh, this is the fifth. This year is the fiftieth anniversary of the Gospel Vision of the Arts talk by Spencer W. Kimball, and in it he puts out this this notion that I think we all have lived with for the past fifty years. That's um, um, someday he said we sh we will have our own Michelangelo, someone who expresses our highest values as Mormons, this per peculiar people through art. And I guess my question to you is, is, is that something you've heard and some people are challenged by the idea and think, oh, I hate that comparison to Michelangelo. How do you, how, how have you personally taken that, that notion from the gospel vision of the arts? Or maybe it isn't something you've ever dwelt on. I personally, am so grateful to be alive right now because um, I've seen it and not 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 in my own work but I've seen it in others I mean there are so many incredible incredible artists in the church right now um, you know Joseph Bricky Nikki Covington Casey Childs um, you know there's just there's incredible artists that are doing incredible things and it's just amazing to me and up Bill Whitaker. I mean, I'm, I'm sure Mary Sauer, I'm sure I'm going to forget some people, but these are all unbelievable artists that are members of our faith and that are making big strides outside of our faith as well. Yeah. And, um, and it couldn't have been predicted. I, I can't see how it could have been when our numbers are so small, the influence that the arts within our culture would have had. And uh, yeah, it's a great time to be alive. There's there's something in the water right now. Yeah, there's something that in the way. water. Well, Jeff, I am I'm always grateful to sit down and talk with you. Every time I feel like I learn a lot, and my mind expands. And I'm sure if we had two or three hours, we could fill it up. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> it was a good time. Yeah. Thanks for having thank, me. Yeah, thank you for coming. Uh, I'd like to thank Jeff Hine for joining us for this episode of Mormon Visual Culture, presented by the Zion Art Society. You can see the works we discussed on our website, zionartsociety.org, under the podcast tab, along with information about Jeff Hines' own work. For more interviews with artists, collectors, and scholars, subscribe to Mormon Visual Culture on iTunes. I'm Micah Christensen. Thank you for listening.